Our next two speakers are political activists who know how to make a difference, how to get things done. First, we have an activist who has received considerable attention for his efforts to raise public awareness of the UFOET issue. His basic strategy for inventing the disclosure process is to go over the heads of elected officials and that is over the heads, government employees, and mainstream media directly to the people with citizen-sponsored ballot initiatives and grassroots news reporting. This idea is catching on, and ballot initiatives targeting other U.S. cities are in the planning stages. During the first six weeks in the spring of 2008, he was interviewed by over 60 local, national, and international news media. His 2008 Denver Extraterrestrial Affairs Commission ballot initiative got so much coverage, he wound up, wound up on the late show with David Letterman, where he was treated very well by an interested host. Our second speaker this session has been a driving force, along with Mike Bird, behind the development of exopolitics in Canada. He emerged on the scene in 2005 with the promotion of Exopolitics Toronto, a symposium on UFO disclosure and planetary direction held at the University of Toronto's Convocation Hall on September 25, 2005. It was at this event that the Honorable Paul Hellyer came forward with his views regarding the extraterrestrial explanation behind the UFO phenomena. They engaged members of the Canadian Parliament and the Canadian political media. Since then, he has kept pressure on the Canadian government with a number of initiatives and constant press releases. Further, he is building a Canadian website for the ExoPolitics World Network and is a regular co-host on the Richard Serrett Show on Glastonbury Radio. Please welcome Jeff Peckman and Victor Vigiani to X-Conference 2009. Thank you very much, Cheryl and Stephen. It's a especially great honor for me to be here because I'm very new to this poll area of uh, activism. Less than a year ago, I was not uh, involved at all. And yet, uh, here I am today because the topic that I'm going to talk to you about is something that's been very effective in changing public policy through much of our history in this country. Uh, before, well, I got into this line of work not really because I had anything important to say. I had no flashy videos or interesting stories of abduction or contact or any kind of encounter like that. But I got into this because I saw that other people had very important things to, to share with the general population. And they were not being given much attention by the media or by the public. And so that's where I just jumped in and thought I could make some difference, help out in some way. Uh, most of my interest has just been in, you know, entertainment for the TV shows and movies about extraterrestrials and Star Trek and, and that whole thing. In fact, I was living in Washington, D.C. when E.T., the extraterrestrial, came out as a movie. And we went and saw that and then went and had afterwards, we just had a little party, had some ice cream sundaes with Reese's Pieces scattered all over. 
and just really had a good time, and that was about it. Because very early on in life, I, because of a couple of things that happened in my elementary school, I decided that I should uh, solve the world problems any way that I could and, and develop my full potential as a human being, whatever that meant. And that was at about age 10 or 12, and I wasn't exactly sure what to do. I just knew that I had to take those directions. And I, I saw the relationship between the fact that I was not using my full potential. At that time, people were, were talking about you know, how you only use 10% of your brain. And actually, a classmate on the playground ran up to a group of us, said, my, dad's, my dad says you're only using one-tenth of your brain. And you know, at that age, I took that very personally. You know, that's a direct insult. And so, uh, but I, I took it very hard as well. And I just vowed that I would find ways to develop my full brain. And so, at the same time, one of my friends told me a story about a group of people that would sneak up on very quiet lakes and ponds high up in the mountains when the conditions were perfect, and they would just lean over and place a little seed crystal of ice on top of the water, and then they would just watch as the entire surface of that water would crystallize. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I'd like to see that. And that was one other impression that uh, was very influential in my life because I looked for those opportunities where there seemed to be a problem and there also seemed to be a solution. And I would observe that perhaps those conditions were just perfect for placing some little seed crystal of an idea or a solution into the consciousness of the population and then watch that spread. And that seems to have been what happened last spring. Now about a year ago, actually two years ago, was my first introduction to this topic. I was invited to a lecture that was going to be given by contactee Stan Romanek. Uh, George Nuri, Nuri mentioned uh, Stan just yet when he spoke last night. And that was really my first exposure to this whole topic. And I saw a lot of evidence that Stan presented that I thought, was just really wonderful that everybody should know this. Why wouldn't they know this? Why wouldn't they want to know about this? He had all kinds of evidence. Uh, his, all of that, a lot of that is going to be presented in his book, which actually comes out next month. Uh, he's already had, it's called Messages. And you can read a little bit more about this case at stanromanek.com, R-O-M-A-N-E-K. And he's already had uh, 6,000 copies pre-sold, and it'll be in the stores, bookstores, in a couple of weeks. But I just, I felt very fortunate to have seen that presentation first, because it was very convincing. It wasn't just blurry lights in the sky or anything like that. There was a lot to it. So I thought, well, good, you know, the public should know about this. But nobody was really paying attention. And then about two months well, about nine months later, he did a public meeting where he actually invited the media. And I knew some of the media from a previous campaign. And so I invited them myself. And I said, you know, you really ought to come to this because I don't want you to spread this around a lot, but this guy has a videotape of what looks like an extraterrestrial being popping up outside his living room window. I don't think anybody came from the media, maybe one person. And that person didn't report on it until about three months later. So I thought, how could that be? That's just ridiculous. 
And uh, then about two months after that, I heard a talk by John Schuessler, uh, I think who was a co-founder of MUFON, and former NASA engineer, aerospace engineer, did, did a lot of work with NASA. And he also, he worked on the space shuttles and I think Gemini program. And he gave a long talk, he had a stack of documents, declassified documents, that basically proved that the government knowingly covered up this whole topic of UFOs of, of, from uh, outside of Earth and extraterrestrial beings. And I thought, well, great, you know, everybody's going to find out about this. The public really needs to know. But at the end of his talk, I was sitting about two rows back from the audience. At the end of his talk, he said, I don't think, that, of course, I don't think the government is going to uh, release this information in my lifetime. And at that moment, a light kind of went on inside of me. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute here, <laughs> you know? First of all, let's remember, we are the government. We are the government. We are not the public servants that we elect. We are the government. And so, from that point, uh, going home, I was home in, within about 20 minutes, and by that time, I had already realized, okay, I, I know how to do this. I know how to get this message to the masses. You can use a ballot initiative. I've done this a couple times before. And uh, within 20 minutes, I had the basic concept of this ballot initiative worked out, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later. Um, on April 29th, just about a year ago, I had taken that concept of a ballot initiative, I had refined it, and basically wrote it so that if it was voted into law by the population, by the voters of Denver, it would create an extraterrestrial, an extraterrestrial affairs commission. Right? Seemed like a good name. And uh, I really wanted the emphasis to be on the extraterrestrial part, and not just you know a UFO committee that would be engaged in looking at all of the kinds of you know blurry lights and other things like that, but really to dig into the evidence that indicated the presence of extraterrestrial visitors on our planet. So at that time, I had other things going on. Uh, I was involved in a uh, a design competition for something in Aspen. And I just started a website uh, promoting this thing called Metatron Technology. It had some brochures out there. I don't really have time to talk about it right now, but uh, these were things that were happening at exactly the same time. And so I didn't want to get involved in a lot of publicity or anything like that, although I knew that the potential was there. So I just wrote up this draft, and one of the first steps to doing a ballot initiative is you have to take this ordinance that you draft and you take it to City Hall and you give a copy to the city attorney or the city council and the city council uh, director of staff. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell the media. I didn't tell most of my friends. I didn't tell my family. And uh, the next day I got a call from a reporter at the Rocky Mountain News, which is now bankrupting <laughs> a couple months ago. It was in Colorado for 150 years and finally went under just two months ago. But uh, at that, when I turned that in, it became a public document and somebody, that was their beat to find out what's going on at City Hall. 
So they did an article about it, and I thought, I read it, I thought, oops. <laughs> so uh, I warned my family, and the next day after that, two local television stations put me on, and then within a week or so, there's about 15 or 20 interviews from that first act of just putting my little seed crystal of an idea into City Hall. About 10 days after I did that, there was a mandatory meeting with these same two people, just to, just an informal meeting to review what the ordinance said. And during that time, the city attorney said, well, so why are you doing this anyway? I mean, let's just get real here. You really, you're, you seem sincere. I said, yeah, sincere. And so why are you doing this? I said, well, I saw some evidence that I thought people should know, and it seemed like the government's not taking any action on this. So, so I am. And he said, well, what kind of evidence? And I mentioned some of Stan Romanek's evidence. I mentioned what John Schuster said. And uh, he said, I told him about this video that I had seen of this looked like an extraterrestrial being rising up, kind of peeking in the living room window. He said, oh, really? He said, yeah. Was nothing, you know, I didn't make a big deal of it. But there were, uh, because of the first round of uh, global media attention from 10 days before, Normally, nobody goes to these meetings. It's just the city attorney, the other person, and whoever is proposing this ballot initiative. And so I walked in, and there were six television cameras there. And the one piece of information that really was broadcast around the world as a second wave of media, uh, news attention from the media, was this video. So all of the reporters that started to interview me after that they say, well, uh, you know, we get to a point, they ask a lot of general questions, and they say, so what about this video? What's on that anyway? Could you describe it? And I told them. And uh, these were very well-known local talk show hosts, and the guy that, you know, exposes all the scams in the city, you know, really trusted people. And they had a pretty consistent response. I would say, well, you know, there's this video, I'm going to describe what happened. And it, it, it was the same response every time. I said, well, that's, that's interesting. I'd like to see that video. How can I see that video? You gotta let me see the video! <laughs> I said, okay, okay. And uh, so I said, you know, after a couple, I said, let's see what I can do. So I asked Stan Romanek. I'd not known Stan prior to that. We only met uh, once before this press conference. But I said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can organize a little gathering. So. I did, and I informed these uh, different reporters locally about the opportunity to see this video. I said, well, this will just fulfill my promise to you uh, to show you the video. Stan Romanek is willing to show it. So we'll, we'll set up a room somewhere. Well, the media itself turned this thing into this big, <laughs> very big deal. That man has proof of alien invasion, and you know, all these things, you know, really built it up. And uh, I sent a press, press release out, and I hadn't sent anything to the press before that, just kind of word of mouth and just what they saw in the news. And uh, then we had the, the press conference was scheduled on a Thursday, no, a Friday morning. Yeah. I sent the thing out on Wednesday, and on Thursday morning at 7 a.m., I, I had all these voicemails, you know, uh, Moscow TV and CNN and USA Today and all this. And so that started 12 hours of almost non-stop interviews. And then I stopped in the evening, and then by 
I just, all day I was taking calls for more interviews for the next day, and calls about just a press conference. About 1 o'clock, 12 to 1 o'clock in the morning, I was sorting through all these little pieces of paper, you know, little post-its and scraps of paper where I'd written all this information just to figure out who I was supposed to meet with the next day. And I overbooked myself on different times, and I, it was just a mess. So I got about four hours of sleep that night, started again the next morning at 7 a.m., non-stop interviews right up into the press conference, did the press conference, and there were, you know, outside the buildings, which at a college campus, there were all these bands with their extended, you know, satellite visions going up, and people were showing up and saying, oh my god, was a shooting going on here? What happened? What's the big deal today? And we walked in the room, and of course, that's where they all were. And there were at least a dozen cameras there, and about 30 or 40 uh, different reporters. We showed the video. We also gave everybody a copy of, of the two-hour disclosure project DVD. And during the, the presentation, we had uh, a, a physicist talk about the evidence that he'd been exploring from Stan Romanek. Um, we had Alejandro Rojas talk from Buffon. And uh, I talked. Uh, we showed some of the witness testimony. But the end result of that was that the media only focused on the video and the still photo that we allowed them to have. We told them we had to make them turn their cameras away so that they could not film the video because it was under agreement and it couldn't be released. But that was what they focused on. So there was really nothing that came from, you know, they really gave it very superficial treatment, even though there was a huge amount of media that got Stan and I on Larry King that evening in an uplink. And then the next week, me going to uh, New York to David, you know, be on the, with David Letterman on stage, and then Geraldo on stage. And then it, that was over, and I went back, and you know, I was mowing the lawn, and just doing, <laughs> life was normal again. And, uh, but that used up about six weeks of the petitioning time. Now, what I want to tell you, one thing about uh, Stan Romanek, George Nuri brought up this fact that he had failed a lie detector test which is technically true. But here's what I want to tell you about that. We were very suspicious of that when, it's, when it got arranged, those of us that knew Stan and were kind of close to his case. And uh, well, I'll just read this. This was something that was sent in by a college student in Boulder, Colorado. The person that conducted the lie detector test on Stan last September was from Boulder. And this was the person arranged by Coast to Coast. And before I read this, I want to tell you there's no indication whatsoever that Coast to Coast knew anything about what I'm going to tell you in advance. But this person emailed uh, some people that were close to Stan and basically sent us a copy of an email that he sent to Coast to Coast. And it started out through Mr. Norrie or something like that. It said, uh, I recently listened to one of your shows where you said that you were going to set up a lie detector test with Stan Romanek. And then he went on to tell this the story is that through a friend, I was able to meet the person involved in administering the actual test to Stan at a coffee shop, met him at a coffee shop. Fascinated, I started asking questions. After an hour or so of talking to this guy, I realized it was a total setup. It was apparent that this guy is a religious fanatic. The more we talked, the more he revealed. Stan never had a chance from the beginning. This guy told me that he would repeat the same question over and over until he found a questionable response to use. 
he told me that he wouldn't let them film him just in case and that he had a moral obligation to stop the blasphemer as he put it a moral obligation to stop the blasphemer he then told me it took him nine tries before he found one he could use against Stan by the time I was finished talking to this nut I wanted to hit him <laughs> there is no justice in this world and uh, I don't have time to go into the questions but I'll give you one example of one question one of the questions was do you know if the boob tape boob tape was just one of the alien in the window if the boob tape has been edited, manipulated or changed in any manner and the thing is that's not really a yes or no question it's the question do you know if it's been manipulated or is the question did you manipulate it and these, there were three questions like that and those, I, I always hated those questions. If that came up, you know, from a friend or something, you know, I'm not going to answer yes or no to that. <laughs> but you can't do that in a lie detector's test. One other thing was that uh, Stan was invited to delay the test so that the pre-test interview could be done properly with more time. But the examiner added that if Stan delayed the test, then people would say he is a liar. And there were actually three different Stan hasn't been in good health because of all the stuff he's gone through. And there are three different uh, health disorders that he has, any one of which is actually a basis for being disqualified from taking the test. And yet the examiner dismissed all of that and took the test anyway. So that's all I want to say about Stan. That, I know that George Nuri and Tom are uh, trying to follow up. I've also understood that this man, uh, that Repeated, that reported this, is, uh, has tried to contact Coast to Coast and they haven't connected, but whatever this is the case, there's something very questionable about that. Now, let me get back to the ballot initiative. Uh, so there were three waves of, of uh, media coverage. And then in about August, and we had at that point six months to collect the signatures, about August I realized there were some serious flaws in the way that, that I wrote the uh, ballot initiative and are these things that could be improved greatly in terms of the qualifications of the people that would be on this commission. And this commission was really just meant to be uh, a body, a board that would be part of the Denver government, along with 80 or 90 other commissions and boards. And its primary purpose would be to gather the best available, credible evidence and make that available to the public and to the city government, just so that people could be informed and empowered to make better decisions in their life relative to all this information. So I changed it. That meant starting over. We had to re-begin the signature process. But during that second meeting with the city attorney, he brought up the fact that something I did not know. He said, well, next spring, we do have a scheduled election, and that's when this would target. But he said, nobody's running for office. There are no other ballot initiatives, no bonds. So the possibility exists that your ballot initiative would be the only thing on the ballot, and it would cost the city about $500,000 at least. I said, oh, okay. Well, in that case, isn't it true that the city council can pass this ordinance themselves? He said, well, yes, technically that's true. I said, well, there you go. So I said, I'll give them 30 days. I'll give them the benefit of 30 days to pass it. And of course, they didn't. 
I won't repeat the responses from the city council. You just, they weren't intelligent. Kind of got to wonder who gets them dressed in the morning. I mean, they were bad. Uh, a few people responded, so I said, all right. I was, I was right in not involving them in the first place. But that, by that point, uh, Obama was just about ready. It looked like he was going to get elected. And it was known that there were people close to his administration that were very favorable to disclosure. And we know those names already. So I thought, we'll just, we'll just sit on this for a while. And after we got elected, like you know, the next week or so, and I said, I, just, I told everybody to stop collecting signatures. We're just going to sit on this for a few months and see what happens. So that's what happened. And then in the meantime, I said, well, OK, well, I've got to do something else to keep this going. I discovered uh, I was just applying for jobs on Craigslist and saw one you could write articles for something called examiner.com. Now, this was something started by Denver billionaire Philip Anschutz, who owns Regal Theaters and a bunch of sports teams. And it was just a new way to bring news to people and get advertising revenue. So people with a passion and have some ability to write are invited. Uh, they're trying to get 12,000 people to do this around the country. And I think they already have about 5,000. So I said, they said, well, what would you write about? And I said, oh, you know, government cover-up, uh, UFOs, that sort of stuff. I'm just kind of going through the motions. And they called me very next uh, Applied on a Saturday night, they called me Monday morning and said, we want to fast track your application. We want you to be the Denver UFO examiner. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'll try that. And so I started writing these articles. And interestingly, the very first article I, I put up on their website, and by the way, these are not just blogs. They get picked up as regular news. And uh, that was very interesting in itself, because then if you go to Google News, news.google.com, and you type in UFO, when I posted my first article, it went right to number one in relevance out of 3,000 articles that were posted that, or, you know, that were listed that day. It wasn't chronological order. And then I did another one. It went right to number one. I did another one. It just kept happening. So I started inviting other people to write these articles. So now there's about a dozen of us, uh, several people from MUFON, their UFO examiners, uh, Michael Sala, Alfred Weber, uh, we're all writing these articles, and they're all just jumping right up to number one in relevance. And in examiner.com, with internally, within the category of politics, uh, Michael's and uh, Alfred's columns rank number one out of over 200 politics examiners nationally. And my column ranks number one, and this is for the year so far, from January 1st. My columns rank number one since then in the category of gadgets and technology. And it's really amazing because if you look on the first page, if you do UFO search on, on Google News, on the first page you'll see typically about half of the 10 listed articles are from examiners. Some of them are from MUFON, some are uh, people within this group, uh, or the exopolitics group. And uh, this is our way of kind of overcoming this restriction by the media, because now we are the media. We're right in there. And our articles are ranking higher than their articles on this topic. Now, so that was going on for a while. And uh, one very interesting thing I'll point out is that recently Michael posted the, rank, the ranking of top five people in the area of politics. And uh, you can only see the top five out of however many there are. 
This was a couple weeks ago. Number one was Seattle Exopolitics Examiner. Number two was Honolulu Exopolitics Examiner. Number three, four, and five were all gun rights examiners. <laughs> so you gotta wonder, are we headed towards some kind of intergalactic showdown at high noon? You know, is that what that's about? I think it's just that UFO, exopolitics are just very, very popular topics because the news has been suppressed for so long. And now people can read unedited, this is very key, our articles do not get edited by the people at examiner.com, even though they are content managers. Now, what happened in February is that, uh, and the reason that I want to emphasize the importance of these ballot initiatives is that President Obama was in Denver uh, late February, and he signed his first big bill, stimulus package bill. And everybody that talked, that was invited there to talk, made reference to Colorado being such a leader in the renewable energy economy, which is true. But you know why that happened? It wasn't because of anything that the legislature did. It was because about four or five years ago, there was something called uh, Amendment 37. And that was the first, uh, very first time that a renewable energy portfolio standard was established by a citizen's ballot initiative instead of going through the state legislature. And it's what kick-started the whole green, you know, renewable energy economy in Denver. And uh, so at that same talk, President Obama was saying things like, you know, we have to, uh, he talked about helping more of our sons and daughters aim higher and reach farther. Now, I think we can assume that he meant higher than Colorado and farther than Hawaii. You know, he does have some vision. And he also invoked the name President Kennedy, who he said sparked an explosion of innovation when he set America's, America's science on the moon. So we would be right to assume that he was thinking beyond the moon as well. Now he has every reason to start disclosing this information. But I have to tell you, this is sort of where I, I part from many of the people in this this movement uh, in terms of disclosure, because I do not believe that Obama, President Obama or Congress, will initiate disclosure. And quite frankly, I don't think that they should. I think the initiation of disclosure should come from our side, because again, we are the government. And the last thing I want to see is for the feds to get involved in this and totally mess it up. So I think in that sense, John Alexander had a very good point that if we rely on the federal government to do this, we're gonna come out with a Condon 2 report and just, you can imagine, you know, scripted messages, very carefully controlled information being leaked out because they're afraid we're too stupid or too fearful to really grasp the whole thing, the whole concept and all the details. And you know, the, the federal government does not have all the evidence. In the short time that I've been involved in this, Plenty of people have contacted me. They said, you know, I haven't shared this with anybody before, but you seem to be a person that's honest and sincere and can reach the masses in what you're doing. I said, well, let's, let's hope so. And so they, they show me photos. They, you know, they want to show me videotapes. They tell their story. 
And it's amazing stuff that's out there. And even the clean energy technologies, free energy technologies, we're not dependent on what the government knows to uh, bring this out to people to take advantage of these of the benefits of disclosure of interacting with extraterrestrial beings. It's really more our call than their call. It's something we can do. It's our task. And for us, you know, and I don't want to in any way say anything that uh, is interpreted as diminishing the value of what Stephen Bassett is doing and all the other people that have worked for disclosure. Stephen Greer, everybody involved. Because, you know, you have to have somebody leaning on the door of our elected officials just to keep your presence there. Because when the door opens, you know, we want our people to be the first to fall in. But at times it just seems like totally relying on that and only relying on that is a little bit like knocking on the door, the servant's door, to our own house and begging for some scraps. And once in a while maybe we get thrown something. We may like it, we may not like it. But at any time we choose, we can simply walk around to the front door that's always open because we are that front door. It's our house. And that's what a ballot initiative does. Now I've got 15 minutes left, so I want to get right into the very important uh, considerations of what's going to happen in Denver. The big question is, and this is not a rhetorical question, so if somebody knows the answer, yell it out or something. In the whole history of our country, how many elected officials, elected government officials, during their time in office have had the will, the courage, and the competence to even to advocate for disclosure of the government X-Files? Is it none? Is it one? You think one? Did uh, Congressman Schiff in, in New Mexico, was he? Okay, was that across the board or just for Roswell? Pretty much Roswell. So really, it's been pretty much none. All right? George, Congressman George Brown. Congressman George Brown. Okay. Okay. So, so there has been some effort, some, somebody that we can appreciate. Well, the thing is, acknowledging the existence of extraterrestrial beings is really a very personal matter. Each person is going to have to decide for themselves what they believe. It's not something that can be dictated by any level of government. And it's a message that I believe is best conveyed person to person in the comfort of each person's home, to friends, to family. And what happens in a ballot initiative, and I've done a couple of these before. I did one in Oregon to label genetically engineered foods in 2002. And that was called the Initiative of Interest by the Associated Press for that year. I did one the next year, it was the Safety Through Peace Initiative in Denver. And it was just introducing the concept that you can reduce the collective stress of a community. And when you do those things, you'll see all the negative social trends and tendencies reduced across the board. And some of that first research was done in Washington, D.C. That was the last story that Dan Rather covered on election night of that year. And he ended by saying, and that's Zen and the Art of City Politics. I like that. Another local paper called it not only the talk of the town, but the talk of the nation. 
And that was true. Just about everybody was weighing in. They even sent people, a team of four people to my house in Denver from The Daily Show. And we sat in the park for three and a half hours, did an interview. So the reason that this happens and really becomes the talk of the town and gets so much attention is because it engages that power, that highest power of government. And that's, I, I believe, what's been missing. We've been taking this message, trying to ask our servants to do this job. But even at the highest level of public office, they're still servants. They're not the masters of our destiny. We are the masters of our own destiny. And this really becomes a choice that we can make. So a ballot initiative engages that power of the, of the public. And as John, James Madison said, fourth president, he said, the people are the only legitimate fountain of power. And it is from them that the constitutional charter under which the several branches of government hold their power is derived. So we are that highest level of power. And to me, it's as if, you know, there's a difference between, you want to plug in your television set, you can take that plug and you can put it near the electrical outlet, or you can put it in the electrical outlet. Big difference, small distance, but very big difference in the, in the result. The very, you know, First Amendment, we're going to be in the First Amendment room tomorrow morning at the press conference. And that First Amendment guarantees the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. So we have that power to do this. And that's, I think, why the media plays attention. Because very typically, it becomes a David and Goliath kind of story. And the media loves those stories. And so what's going to happen in Denver, this is the third time. I rewrote it, then put it on the back burner. Recently, I decided, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for the federal government to take the lead in this. I think we need to take the lead in this. So I restarted the ballot initiative. By the time I get back, we'll be ready to start collecting our signatures again, targeting the November 2009 election. We have six months to collect signatures, but because of other deadlines, to get on that ballot, we have three months. So we'll either make it then, or it'll get bumped on to next May. But here's what's going to happen. This is very important to know that during the ballot initiative campaign, especially a very unusual ballot initiative, it not only becomes the talk of the town in the media, but imagine trying to go into a classroom, or being a teacher, like Victor is, going into a classroom and saying, you know, let's talk about UFOs today, and extraterrestrial beings. How far is, are you going to get with that? Nobody even dares to do that, all right? But this topic is not about, in a ballot initiative, it's not about UFOs and extraterrestrials. It's about an election campaign. It's about an issue campaign on a particular topic. And what happens, and this is not speculative, this, this happens all the time. Entire classrooms all over the city, the state, the nation will pick a ballot initiative for their social studies class, political science class, biology, physics, especially if it has some relation to those areas, and they'll study it. They'll say, well, this is our project. We're going to see, we're going to hold a mock election. This is what they do. We'll hold a mock election. We'll divide up. Half the class will study, you know, for, and half the class will study against, and we'll hold, you know, debates, and then we'll vote in our class. 
So that's the way you just kind of slip this topic into the classrooms. And these children, these students, become experts in that field. So when this happens, there's going to be a huge demand for information. And where are these students going to look for the information? Libraries, maybe, but the internet. And what are they going to see on the internet? They're going to see top-ranked articles coming from these examiner writers. They're going to see books and DVDs that are from the people that have been speaking at these conferences from the researchers. And this is just going to flood the entire population of a major city in a way that's never happened before. And I just have a couple minutes left, so I want to let you know things that you can do. Uh, I'm not going to be at my table until after Victor is done speaking, because we don't have a scheduled break in between. But if you would like to see this happen, I also don't have a book to sell, but if you'd like to help write a chapter in the book of this disclosure process, I urge you to support this campaign in various ways. Certainly there's money uh, donations that can be applied towards getting the signatures. There's also an eight-page citizen's briefing document that's being created that will actually have the kind of information that you've never seen in the media. It'll have witness testimony. It'll have stories about the CIA siphoning money out of our economy. It will have the quote about the Central Intelligence Agency that owns anyone, of that, uh, everyone of any significance in the major media. That was made by the former CIA director. So on different levels, it's really going to saturate the population with information they've never heard. Not just providing information, but providing it at a time when they want to know it and feel a need to know it because they take their vote very seriously, like a jury trial. You get these jurors, and they're very smart people and they evaluate the evidence. This is going into the court of public opinion, and the voters are both the jury and the judge, and they're going to weigh the evidence. And there are not enough men in black to keep this from happening. <laughs> they're not going to be parading down the street, you know, stealing these from the porches of the people or taking it off the internet, and there's going to be information there uh, and, and you can imagine that this just in the, in the playground, uh, in the bars, in the backyard, the barbecues, when people are faced with this kind of vote that they have, they're going to be asked to make, they deliberate in a way so much more thoughtfully than our legislators do uh, in all the legislation that most of them never read anyway. They're just told, you know, it's a good way to vote. So anyway, I have to wrap this up, but that's really it. The campaign, you can find out more at extracampaign.org. That's where I try to keep up on things. I'll be posting this citizen's briefing document there, uh, perhaps through the examiner articles, uh, where they'll be posted. And you, you'll be able to see a full, the full text of the ballot initiative. And uh, I think this is going to be a breakthrough and provide a missing ingredient to this whole process of disclosure. Because if it's one thing that politicians get motivated by, it's being ignored. You can, you know, the more you try to pressure them, the more it seems to just embolden their own status and bolster their ego, where they can just select, okay, where am I going to get the best, best votes, the most votes, by, by dealing with these different requests. But when you ignore them, then they start reacting, you know, it's like take it away from them. So you're not really important anymore to this. We'll do it ourselves because we are the ultimate fountain of power in this country. This is the most important issue. We'll take care of it. You deal with your lobbyists and all these little things you do. 
we'll take care of the big issues, okay? We created this country, we created the Congress, we created the White House, the, the, all the court system. We can certainly create disclosure, take advantage of the information that's already available, get it out to the masses in a very effective way, and I would ask you to support this, promote it, donate. If you live in Denver, sign a petition. If you live in Colorado, help collect signatures. Uh, there's lots of ways to support it. And it's not, it's just such, it has so much leverage that it's not a vast expense. But you know, we will collect some money and there's going to be fundraising events and all that just to get this thing done. Once it's on the ballot, it'll completely dwarf the amount of publicity that, that occurred last spring. So my time is up, I know that. I know you're gonna enjoy uh, the next speaker, Victor Bijani. So thank you very much. It's been said that the world is run by people who show up. So thank you for showing up. I said last year during the presentation that I gave, because I was the last speaker last year too, uh, and I'm the last speaker this year also, so it's like the whole world of tuxedo and out of just a brown pair of shoes, you know? Uh, but that doesn't bother me too much, I've, I've done that before. Uh, but what I'd like to do today is, is uh, look at it from a totally Canadian perspective. I know that there's been lots of different kinds of perspectives put forward this afternoon and uh, all, all weekend, and I've listened to some absolutely brilliant speakers. And uh, in, in no way do I want to, uh, you know, provide uh, any kind of, uh, you know, reflections on those. What I want to do is, is allow you to appreciate the fact that there is a country north of the 49th parallel. It is there. And uh, Canadians are not just nice Americans. We are a unique breed of people. And we're very inquisitive about things, and we look at things from a very different perspective. And that's what I'd like to share with you uh, this afternoon. Because uh, myself and, and my colleague, if we could bring up the first slide, gentlemen, uh, Michael Bird, who's the director of uh, Exopolitics Toronto. And Michael, would you just stand up and just, uh, this is Michael, he's the director, and he and I work together in Toronto. And Michael and I have done a lot of great work together. And I want to share that with you uh, this afternoon, but I want to make just uh, four or five brief points before I sort of launch into the, into the, uh, the presentation. First of all, I, I want to make it clear that this presentation is that I'm trying to bridge a gap here. 
the gap between those of you who are intensely familiar with the issue, and there's lots of you out there that have a really good foundation and, and background in the, in the issues. And there are also individuals uh, outside uh, that are novices and really don't have a whole lot of foundational knowledge. So I want to try to bridge that gap. Because one of the things that we do uh, in Toronto and the presentations that I've given in, uh, in Ontario is I talk to city groups who know nothing about this, rotary groups, uh, community groups of different kinds. And specifically, uh, at the University of Toronto during last year, November and December, we had a, uh, uh, I guess, a lecture series at the University of Toronto, three lecture series. Uh, and each of them was attended by over 180 people at the University of Toronto. And basically, by and large, these are faculty members, people with PhDs and and so on and so forth, students and so on. And they have absolutely no foundational information about this. And uh, I said at the first presentation that we made history in the first time that exopolitics was ever presented at the University of Toronto. And I presented the information and they were completely aghast. They had no idea, other than the fact they had heard about this thing called the UFO, but other than that, they had no idea that this was an intensely political type of situation. And so from that point of view, we are trying in Exopolitics Toronto not to speak to the converted, but to speak to people who need to know about this, who know nothing about it or very little about it. And I include the media in that. And you'll see that later on as the presentation goes along. The other point that I want to make is that um, I guess uh, the next category of learners, I'm speaking to learners now, and there, there's another category of learners. I'll make a statement here. Uh, anyone here from the, um, uh, any government covert intelligence agency, um, <laughs> if you're here, there will be a session for the learning impaired after in the hallway, and I'll, I'll, I'll present that to you. So if you are there, I'll meet you in the hallway. And because I'm a teacher, I know what the learning impaired go through when they get confronted with new information. So I'll be able to explain everything to you out in the hallway later on, if your attention span is that good. Is that a good enough shot or what? <laughs> the other thing I want to do is, is indicate that, and Jeff sort of indicated this, but the, the metaphor of a door. And Nick Pope also uh, yesterday talked about this. Now, the door to disclosure is ajar and can be opened, but it just depends on whether or not we want to open the door or kick it in. And uh, as opposed to just um, uh, metaphor going around the front door, uh, I may be a little bit more aggressive in my attempts to get to the door. And the final thing that I want to mention to you before I begin is that um, we have no more time with this. We don't have any more time to hem and haw or otherwise dither about this issue. We no longer have the opportunity of stopping children in Africa, millions of them, who will never ever sniff or taste a glass of clean water. With the energy sources that will be available after disclosure and all the things that we know that free energy will provide, those children that are there right now, that are suffering as I pick up my styrofoam cup and sip on a glass of water that they will never, ever taste. And that's why I do this. That's one of the reasons why I'm standing here. 
after being a teacher for 35 years in administration as a principal, I know what children are like, and I know how children suffer. So that's why I'm doing this. So with that context, I want you to understand the following. The, is this light up, guys? That's just an introduction, a bit of a bias that I want to introduce you to. Participation in North American democracy is largely based on the citizen, on the belief that citizens should never be released into the world unless they've been properly sedated. <laughs> and I mean that. It's, uh, it's, it's a condition of our environment. It's a condition of every single thing we do. Read a newspaper, it doesn't really matter what it is. Who you believe in as a god, all of that. And I think that it's the role and the function of North American media the church and the government. Keep us sedated. Just keep us disconnected from the truth. And I think it's a very important part of uh, how we're treated on a day-to-day -day basis. Watch CNN any time of the day. You'll get exactly what the foundation of sedation is. Take a pill. Turn on channel 33. Take a pill. You'll be sedated. Sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? But it's the truth. I'm sorry. Okay. One of our um, missions is we have a three-pronged and very consistent approach to how we try to engage the media, academia, and the government. And Michael and I have made a concerted effort to stay focused on those three things. We contact media, you'll see that in a few minutes. We work with academia, with the University of Toronto, and also we work with government uh, officials, believe it or not. And personally, I've, I've, I've briefed two members of parliament so far. The Canadian journey began in this way, with that man. And I have a statement to make, which was not part of the presentation, but I'm going to say it anyways. It came out of the last uh, debate that Mr. Hellyer was uh, more than a bookmark for several months in Canadian government. Um, it just, I can't quite think who said that, but I think he was sitting in that chair there. Um, in fact, Mr. Hellyer was the Minister of Defense, not a bookmark, from April 1963 to September of 1967. And I think if I do quick calculations, that's more than several months. So I just want to um, clarify that for the individuals involved. Thank you. Thank you. Needs to be said. Mr. Hellier said UFOs are as real as the airplanes that fly over your head. And so began at the University of Toronto in 2005 an absolutely avalanche of information about who this man was and what he stood for. And then Exopolitics Toronto took it from there. And as a matter of fact, Paul is still engaged in the issue. He's still very, very much engaged in it. He's doing his biography. I spoke to him just last week. He's, he's completing things. It's a tough road, but he's still completing it. He's still very, very much engaged in this whole issue. And he needs to have our support, and I know he has mine, because he's a man of great integrity and immense will. So this man is an incredible individual, and I would trust my life to this man. So um, any question about integrity regarding this individual is totally unfounded. That's all I'll say about that. 
The other thing we want to do today is look at it's another departure here. We want to look at some, the release of the Canadian files, okay? We've heard about the British releasing theirs, the French and the Danish and so on. And great media coverage. It just went viral most of the time. But in 205, the Canadian government released 9,500 files without any kind of media representation. Totally unheralded. Why? Interesting. I'll go into that. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Those are the first look at very four very specific memos that the Canadian government has released. They're very shocking. We'll get to them in a minute and I'll show you. And uh, what I want to do is look at the media implications of that. There's the website. That's what it looks like. Uh, Library and Archives Canada. That's where all of the files are released. I'm not going to read that to you. But what I'd like to look at is some memos and some procedures. These are just um, indications of policy that the government has set. But there's hundreds and hundreds of UFO sighting reports. But you will see very soon that there's policy developed to how to play down UFOs. And this is not something that's terribly relevant to the other uh, reports that we get internationally. Um, sighting reports versus containment strategies. What's happened with these reports is that well over 90% of them are reviewed thus far, okay? Looked at them, and they're just basic, mundane, as Nick Pope says, they're very mundane, exciting for a man who walks dog, sees light in the sky, that's about it. Lots of them, 90% of that. However, several of the files within the Department of National Defense are policy directives by ministry officials attempting to contain the UFO issue. It's very clear. And the other aspect of this, as I mentioned before, there's been absolutely no media attention given to this in Canada. Does anyone here know that the Canadians have released 9,000 files? Isn't that it? Oh, well, Frederick does, of course, because I told you, right, Frederick? <laughs> but it's just, it's not news. And I wonder why. Is there something going on that we should know about? So with that in mind, I started started, and I've reviewed up to about 2,100 files so far, and that's just a mind-numbing click, 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 ooh. And I came up with four very interesting uh, files we're gonna look at right now. Um, I just wanna say that if documented evidence of government complicity were to be closely examined, we all know that disclosure would be an absolute media frenzy. If we could definitely say if there is complicity, I think the media would be all over it, I hope. And my question, our position statement at Politics Toronto, as far as Michael and I are concerned, is, is, is has the political smoking gun of complicity been found in Canada? So that's another question that I think we want to answer. Yep, so. Oh, there you go, okay. Oh, isn't that nice? I feel better. Um, anyway, just one. Uh, what might the evidence look like, okay, if we wanted to try to look at what government government complicity is. And I'm a, a, a linguistic, uh, I have a linguistic bent. I studied linguistics in university, and I think language, the process of language is extremely important. How you use language, what it means, is very symbolic. So when you look at language, especially from the government and the media, you have to pay very, very good attention to every single thing they say. Because the nuances of language, there's a subtext of language. If you just read the word, it means one thing, but there's also a subtext. And if you look at that in linguistics, you get to find out what the writer is really saying. So I keep that in mind all the time. When I read children's work, 
the creative writing or whatever it is, you have to look at the word. You know, look at the punctuation, but you also look at the subtext of what the children write. So from that point of view, I look very closely at language. Uh, next slide. These are the documents. And first of all, the first document that looks at this clearly is evident that they attempt to sanitize the position. They clean things up. They make it look like there's really nothing going on. And the thing is, it's developed by bureaucrats and not necessarily by the elected officials, but is used for the elected official signature. We'll see that in a moment. And language, which is used, as I said a minute ago, is um, used to sort of show how they will avoid or misrepresent the UFO issue. Government complicity will also talk directly and be attributed to officials trying to play down. You see the language in these, in these memos. It's very clear. They play down and misrepresent what the UFO issue really is. They will show that there's recommendations by non-elected and intra-departmental officials that might lead elected officials to make public statements or sign pre-composed letters to push out to the public to misrepresent the UFO issue. It's quite clear that's exactly what happens. And also policy in the memoranda shows that ministers of defense publicly discourage inquiries into the UFO matter. go back on that. This is really incredible. There is a memorandum that will show you that might discuss the possibility of a contact event. Now, I don't know. I've looked through some of the British files and some of the French, but I don't know any government official who has written any kind of verbiage that talks about a contact event and what we'll do when it happens. The Defense Research Board in Ottawa uh, for lack of a better word, it deals with munitions and development of war materials and so on. All of these memos originate from that particular branch. And the first memo is from the Joint Intelligence Committee, and it recommends that Canada actually use the United States Air Force policy that was in place in the 1950s to play down the UFO issue. And it actually uses the word play down. We actually have a memo by a Minister of National Defense that says, we're not withholding anything. Oh, sorry. Can we have that up on the, on the screen? Here's the first memo by the Joint Intelligence Committee. And as I said, there is a memo that says that defense ministers are holding back nothing. And there's a memo that says we shall discourage UFO reports and there's actually one that talks about a plan for a landing event. Once again, language. Here's the first one. That's what the memo looks like. I want you to read it. I sort of focused in on it a bit, but there are three significant statements in this memo. And what I've done, and you'll see this all the way through the presentation, I don't want you to read that. I just retyped it, so you just have to trust me that I typed it properly. Here's what it says. First statement says, the present USAF policy is to play down the subject, investigating only when considered necessary by the area commander without any special arrangement for reporting or investigation. Next statement. It seems that a similar policy on our part 
would be wise and that it would be undesirable to produce a special questionnaire or make arrangements for investigation since this would tend to give publicity to the matter. This is in a memo. Okay? I just, I can't believe that. Next statement. It is therefore suggested that citing reports should not be solicited. This is coming from a government official. A.S. Austin is his name. Director of Air Intelligence. Intelligence. The uh, next memo is from a Minister of Defense, Douglas Harkness, back in the early 50s. That's what the memo looks like. And he states, I can assure you that there is no department of the government that desires or has instructions to withhold information on objects that might be of extraterrestrial origin. It's interesting that three years after the Roswell event, the Minister of Defense in Canada would use the word extraterrestrial. I find that very interesting. He goes on to say, none of the available reports on UFOs could be interpreted as providing evidence of objects which are not natural phenomena or man-made. Nevertheless, we are most interested in receiving reports of this nature, both from the aspect of what they might yield scientifically and from the standpoint of any threat to national security. We've all heard that before. So there's a bit of a contradiction here. The minister is saying we invite them, but there are other people within the bureaucracy who are saying no, we must discourage them. So there's obviously a conflict within the policy that bureaucrats are writing and what the minister wants to say. The other uh, memo that I find very interesting is uh, the chief of air staff uh, tells the minister, the staffer to the minister, that we should discourage UFO reports. And this is a letter uh, from an individual within the bureaucracy to the minister saying, let's let put something together so that these people don't write any more things to us and ask any questions. So basically it says, the proposed reply to Mr. whatever the fellow's name was, or the citizen, it's quite lengthy, informative, though not specific. It's in the hope that it may discourage further inquiries from this particular source. What does that tell you about the government's availability to actually garner information or want to invite information from the, from the public? I think it says volumes. Now, this is really funny. When I first saw this, it just blew me away. And I was just browsing through it. And you can see this right at the bottom. You can see that. And note the term landing. It doesn't talk about a crash. It talks about landing. Why would a government official recommend that there be any discussion at all about devising a plan for a landing of a flying saucer? Doesn't that seem curious to you? Very curious to me. Let's go back a second. <coughs> what I'd like to point out is that the government, first of all, states that no reports indicate of extraterrestrial involvement at all. But let's play everything down. The next thing, they talk about a landing. And I have a flying background myself, and I know what landing means. Landing means getting a craft, going into a controlled descent, and landing it on a solid surface. That's what it means. It doesn't mean a crash. So these experts, these are experts in air intelligence. 
DAI, Director of Air Intelligence. Why would he use the word landing if he didn't know something was going on? That's totally puzzling to me. And I think if the media ever get a hold of that, I think it's, it's, uh, it's very provocative as far as I'm concerned. And the other thing that happens is that they should talk about this in a very controlled way. Okay? And the development of a plan, and all the memo says we should talk about this, exactly what happened behind closed doors is very uncertain. But the fact of the matter is the government of Canada talked about planning for a landing of a flying saucer. What's it all mean? Well, in my, uh, I don't know, doubtful way of looking at things in terms of language, I think it's a tactic for a cover-up. I believe that. Personal opinion. And I believe that there's all here the language of mendacity. And that word to me is very poignant. The word mendacity means a planned attempt to deceive. And whether or not that was going on in 1950, I'm not quite sure. But I can only picture myself in the office of the man who wrote those memos and the people who received them and saying, what are we going to do with this UFO issue? We don't know exactly what to do. Well, let's follow what the United States Air Force did and play it there. That's all. That's the only conclusion that I can come to. If there's anyone that has another conclusion, we can talk about that. But that's my perception of it. So what do we have here? We've got a Joint Intelligence Committee recommending playing down UFOs. We've got a minister saying, oh, well, there's really nothing to this. We're not, holding, we're not withholding anything at all. Everything is okay. The citizens are taken care of. And you are properly sedated. <laughs> We've got memos saying that UFO reports shall be discouraged. And then we have the Canadian government talking about a land plan. Okay? Where they got that from, I don't know. What's it leave as doubt? There really isn't any doubt in my mind, okay? Having been involved in this for over 35 years, it's very clear that the Canadian government was involved in policy about the UFO ET issue. And they discussed it, they analyzed it, they manipulated it, they politicized it, and it kept secrets at the highest possible level of governance in Canada since the early 1950s. That's my conclusion. That's the only one that I can come up with. Here, do you have another one? I'd like to hear it. Share it with me. This is not a Canadian document, but I just thought I'd throw it at you just for enlightenment's sake. This is a CIA document. Anyone seen this before? It's kind of hard to look at, but basically, it's a 1952 memo. It was written by Edward Powers. Edward Cowles was an interesting character because he also was involved with Herbert, uh, J. Edgar Hoover in another letter. But this is the one that he wrote on flying saucers. And he made two significant statements. The first one was, notwithstanding so long as a series of reports remains unexplained, interplanetary aspects of the alien origins not excluded, caution requires that intelligence continue on this subject matter. And then he goes on to say something even more insidious. It is strongly urged that no indication of CI interest or concern reach the press or the public of the soundest of un unpublished reports in the hands of the United States government. That, to me, is lock, stock, and barrel. 
How long? And this was a 1952 memo. Much along the same timeline as the Canadian government was involving themselves in exactly the same thing. So I think that's a very telling type of indication. What have we done so far in Canada? Well, let's just go on for a second and look at what we perceive. We recognize the Canadian media is very different than the American media. The ownership is different. So we recognize that there is openness in the Canadian media to look at this stuff. It's more open than you'd really imagine, and I'll show you that in a moment. And we've also been involved in activity in the mainstream media, in the print and the broadcasting. We've also, as I indicated earlier, we've briefed two members of parliament on, on this issue. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is really interesting. It's, a, it's an agency that runs right across Canada. There's really nothing in the States like it. It's not PBS. It's a, a broadcasting corporation and it runs right across Canada. It's, it's supported by tax dollars, but they have shown moderate interest in exposing this issue. Now to Canada, it goes right across. Each, each city has a CBC um, affiliate, much like the BBC in, 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 in Britain. And they're very, very incisive in their broadcasting, very liberal too. So we have an inroad here. Diana Swain is one of the most respected Toronto journalists on television. Everybody tunes in at 6 o'clock to watch this lady. And I had, I don't want to go into the whole story, but I met and had a bit of a briefing with the producer of the 6 o'clock news, Rita Tonelli, who I met inadvertently. And we, we had a, a very long three-hour conversation, and I said to her, you know, if something comes up, uh, would you want to cover it? So I said, yeah, okay, yeah, I would, you know. So, um, Within three days after the meeting, I get a call from Rita. And she said, can I send the crew out because you just released information on the Canadian UFO file. I said, sure, send them up. So this young fellow, um, uh, Steve D'Souza, came to the house. And uh, the film crew, and he was there for an hour and a half. And so what Diana did, uh, or what Steve did, was uh, produce a little bit of a clip. There's three clips of this, and I want to thank uh, our people from, from Denmark and Germany for putting this together for me. And what we did was this, and I hope this, the, the technology works here. And here's what uh, Diana said on the 6 o'clock news. Welcome back. No doubt about it, many Canadians are enthusiastic about Barack Obama's visit to Ottawa. But you may be surprised to hear about a group that's particularly excited about his presidency, People who believe in unidentified flying objects. That's right, UFOs. Stephen D'Souza has more on why they hope Obama's election will lead to proof that extraterrestrial life exists. Victor Vigiani is convinced UFOs are real, and the government's own documents prove it. These are craft of non-Earth origin. Take it to the bank. He says the answers are right on the internet for anyone to see. Thousands of files from the 50s to the 80s, hundreds of UFO sightings, all searchable through the government's library and archive site. But he says to see the truth, you have to read between the lines. But if you look at all of the files, the theme is don't let the information out, play it down. It's really nothing important, although these craft are in fact under intelligent control. The information has been around for a couple of years. But Vigiani says the real key to prove aliens exist is for the Americans to release their UFO files, and that Barack Obama is going to do it. 
the UFO community is pegging its hopes on Obama because one of his close advisors once pushed the Pentagon to reveal the top secret files. So that's basically the end of the, that particular clip. The whole newscast was an hour, but that's just one minute, about 30 seconds of it. And I find it really interesting that CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, would deem it appropriate to put something like that on the 6 o'clock news in Toronto. And Toronto has a population of 4.5 million people. And CBC News has a market share of over 80% of that. So uh, that means something. It means something to me as a as an exo-politician, it means something to me as an activist, and it means that we are making serious inroads in Canada uh, regarding this. Now, I might tell you that the six o'clock news is only trumped by the national news, and I have a series of slides in that, but I want to get into it, by Peter Mansbridge. I don't know if any of you are Canadian, but you may, you may know Peter. Peter is sort of the Dan Rather, uh, Walter Cronkite, but he's probably about my age, you know, in his early 60s. Uh, but this man, uh, when it comes on at 10 o'clock, the country stops, and they listen to Peter Mansbridge. And he's a very well-heeled individual, he's been around CBC long enough, but our goal is to get Peter Mansbridge to talk about this stuff nationally. That's, that's our goal, that's our goal, that's Toronto. So, uh, the progress so far that we've made, and we feel that we've made significant representation in all the media in Canada. The thing that we've done is, those are the, the agencies that we've looked at and been involved with, Trump, Torstar, which is the Toronto Star, which is the, the largest newspaper in Canada. Astro Media, the largest uh, uh, media organization in Canada, other than the CBC. And we've had representation on all of those, in addition to other smaller, uh, smaller is not a really good word for it, but we're looking at billion dollar industries here. So we've had representation in all of those, which we think in Canada is very significant. We have to keep on pushing to do that. And once any one of these large corporations takes it on, we feel that this could go viral in Canada, just like the Paul Hellyer story did. So that's where we're at. Two predictions. First of all, this will sort of finish things up. Um, we feel that the CBC television or radio, within the next year, that we're going to hit that. We feel that very confident. Michael and I uh, are doing everything we can. We've got lots of good contacts in the CBC and in other media too, along with Richard Sarachio and a lot of other uh, people who do the interviews uh, in Canada with myself. And the other thing that I want to point out to you is that this, I don't like going to conferences anymore. Okay, I'm sick of, I'm, I'm really tired of all of this, let's get disclosure going, okay? We've got to prove to ourselves that this has to end very, very soon. So I'm gonna predict that the next X conference will be a post-disclosure. <coughs> I know I'm going out on a limb, just like will the Toronto Maple Leafs win this down the town. But uh, no, I, I'm, I'm very serious in that. I would hope to be standing here next year, uh, if I'm not in Australia, which I just might be, talking to you about post disclosure. And Exopolitics, the Institute, along with uh, several of us, uh, myself and Michael Sala and Alfred Weber, who we, we talk consistently about it. We are putting together some ideas about what a post-disclosure world would look like, might look like. It's like building a pair of shoes that uh, humanity could fit their feet into. How's it going to feel when you know, when you know that they're here? And the government said, yeah, they're here. But how will that information come out? 
So what I'm hoping that this time next year that we'd be talking about, my goodness, oh, now we've got that over. Now we've got to really do the next job. What's the next job? Is making people feel comfortable with what's going on, with what comes next. And when I was a teacher in the classroom, at the very back of my class, every single year, I would get big, huge letters and tell the kids, what comes next, dot, dot, dot. Always preparing kids and people for what comes next. So that's basically the end of my presentation. Just leave you with one thought. Thanks very much. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's the last one. Yeah.